could just grab your lungs and squeeze them so you couldn't breathe anymore. And that would be it. You're dead. But that takes me to the actual question of the strength of a ghost. How strong is a ghost? Is it related to your physical being before you died? So let's say a big hulky man dies. Is he a physically strong ghost? Whereas you have a, a young girl who's also an invalid. She dies and she's not very strong at all. She's very weak. Now that doesn't seem to make sense. It's almost as if all ghosts should have the same level of physical ability or prowess. But then that doesn't make sense either because two ghosts wouldn't have the same abilities or strength because they're different. They're actually individuals within even the ghost realm. So you're not just born with a set of abilities and you're not just died and sent into the ghost world with a set of abilities. So there has to be some kind of relationship between what you were when you were alive and what you are as a ghost to determine what you can and can't do and how well you'll be able to do it. Some stories I've read and some movies I've seen that actually talk about the passion or the level of anger. So Ring is one of my favorite movies, the original Japanese movie. And the whole creation of the Sadako character, the ghost in that who comes in and kills you uh, with her curse, that was all brought about by the intense level of her anger. So it was her passion and her anger at the world is what created her entity. And that's why as her anger increased after she was dead, she became stronger and she could spread her curse around more. But then pretty much any person who died with that level of passion would suddenly become a really powerful ghost. So again, we would have a lot more powerful ghosts doing a lot more powerful things. So the only logical answer I could come to is that it would have to be your level of concentration. So if you have the mental prowess to concentrate, you could learn how to both pass through solid objects using your ethereal body, but also how to concentrate so that you could interact with physical objects so you can move them around and do scary things. If you are ever going to write a ghost story, you need to decide on your rules. This is a big thing for me in horror stories in general is they have to have a rule set. You don't necessarily have to explain it that clearly to the audience, but you have to have a set of rules and you have to stick to those rules so that things that happen within the story actually make a certain amount of sense. One of my favorite movies, a recommendation, is a movie called Let the Right One In. And I think it was originally Swedish or something like that. And it's about a vampire. And they follow all the traditional vampire rules. And I think that is what makes it an exceptional movie. Because there's one scene, the vampire wants to come into the room, but can't. She says to the boy, you have to invite me in. And he goes, why? So the vampire takes a step in and starts like burning. The boy freaks out and says, okay, okay, you can come into my room. Please come into my room. I invite you into my room. And then it stops. He goes, why does that happen? And the vampire quite clearly says, I don't know. It's just what happens. So they have set the rules and they follow the rules, but then all the rules and everything that happens within the construct of the film makes sense. And I think this is a problem with ghosts. A lot of ghost stories don't have rules. They do a lot of random things. And random activity is scary for a moment, but it's not scary long term. Because after a while... It becomes very clear that you have no idea what's going on. You don't know why anything's happening and you have no sort of input or you have no way you can react because whatever you react, something else that's random is going to happen. And actually, randomness is not that scary. So if you're going to write a ghost story, I'm saying come up with a set of rules. And my advice, or at least my idea, would be that the ability of the ghost has to be determined in advance, what they can and can't do, uh, how they can move around, what they are able to interact with, because that seems to be not thought through with a lot of 
ghost stories. Since I went for a Halloween theme, again, sort of inadvertently, I went on Quora and I, I did a search for monsters to see what would come up. There, I came up with two questions that aren't really Halloween themed, but they were interesting nonetheless. If your three-year-old tells you there's a monster in their room, do you dismiss what they're seeing or feed into it, asking them to describe what they saw? Now, this is a parenting question, and it's actually something that I had to deal with uh, in a very light way. You don't dismiss a child when they say they've seen or heard something because that's just mean. I mean, don't be a shithead. Uh, but I don't think you want to make it worse by having a deep, in-depth conversation where you let their imagination grow, go wild. The first thing you need to do is just look at them and say, monsters aren't real. Now, that doesn't mean that bad things aren't real or the world doesn't have bad things in it, but the monsters you're imagining are probably not real. Now, that implies that you're just dismissing them, but what you do is you have to follow up. So what you do then is go, let's go on a monster hunt. So we're going to get some equipment. I put on an extra jacket. And that was going to be my monster hunting jacket. And we got some paper swords and stuff. And we decided to go and we turned on the light and we went into the closet and we got some flashlights and we looked around in the closet, no monsters. And then we went under the bed and we looked under the bed and we actually crawled all the way under the bed, no monsters. And then we went around to any room the kid wanted to go to. We went into the other bedrooms, we went into the rooms, and we found no monsters. So while I was making it clear that monsters didn't exist, I was like, let's have, let's make this event fun so that you can explore the house and get more comfortable with the idea that monsters don't exist. Because we have actually just gone through and proven my theory that monsters don't exist. So while I am dismissing the concept of monsters, I am not dismissing the child's concerns because we still need to take care of those. So that's some podcast parenting advice. But I also did the same thing with Santa Claus. When Santa Claus became an issue, whereas like, is Santa Claus real? Really early on, before they would even ask, I actually was telling my kids that Santa Claus wasn't real. Santa Claus is a character, like the characters you see in the cartoons that you watch. So is Ampleman real? And my kids would say, no, he's just a cartoon, because we'd actually already had that discussion. Santa Claus is the same. We can still pretend, we can still have a good time, we can still go through all the motions and write letters and stuff, because that's fun but I don't want you to believe that Santa Claus is real. I also don't want you to ruin it for your friends because again, it's fun and part of the fun is actually just going through doing all these things. I also didn't want to have my kids ruin it for other kids if their parents made different decisions. The result of that was that my children never had that moment of loss of confidence that they'd been lied to their whole life. So they never had that moment. I had that moment when I was a kid. I don't remember how old I was. I think I was somewhere between six and nine when I think my sister was laughing at me because I believed in Santa Claus. And uh, it was actually when we started speaking about it in logical terms. Yes, it was clear that there was no Santa Claus going around the, the world in a night giving presents. But of course, I did have that crisis of confidence where I'd been lied to for years and it was something that I believed. I didn't want my kids to go through that. So I told them the truth. But... We didn't ruin Christmas because we can still have a good time. We still wrote letters to Santa Claus and uh, I bought the presents and we would give them stuff and it would be safe from Santa Claus and they would laugh when they opened the presents. So you can still have a good time and be honest with your children. What is the most dangerous fictional monster that is biologically plausible and could exist? Most monsters, yes, the biologically plausible part is what actually would, where it would fall apart. Real, I don't know, but... My biggest concern about space travel would be 
a space parasite. So my favorite monster is the alien from the movie Alien. To me, if you take away the fact that it grows exponentially and, and, and goes around hunting human beings and stuff and becomes this incredibly or becomes this incredibly giant monster within a couple of hours, not having enough food source. The actual concept of a space parasite is very plausible. And it doesn't have to be one that bursts out of your chest and becomes a big monster. It could just be one that stays in your body. So the initial something that lays an egg in you and that eats you from the inside, I see that as a very, very plausible monster that's very possible because we have stuff like that on Earth already. And one from space might be just that much more aggressive. So for me, dangerous is actually something that comes from the inside out because you can't fight that. Uh, if there's a monster outside, there is actually an opportunity for me to try to kill it. I might not have much of a chance, but at least that chance exists. Most of our horror movies hinge on the possibility of being able to survive the encounter with the monster of some sort and maybe even being able to defeat them. Whereas if the monster is inside you, the only thing you could really do is cut it out or get it out or like irradiate yourself. But whatever you do to it is also going to do damage to you. And that to me, that becomes the most dangerous element. And absolutely parasites, uh, alien parasites, parasites from other worlds or other biologies are incredibly possible. So for me, that's also the most terrifying thing. Space parasites. The xenomorph part is just extra entertainment. So during a zombie apocalypse, uh, we have these zombies tend to, again, following a rule set, which is quite nice, zombies bite other people, and through that bite, they transfer the virus or whatever made them zombies in the first place. Because again, I did two episodes on old zombies and new zombies. This would be way back in the, like, the first dozen uh, Velocipodcasts. But the old zombies used to be just sort of hypnotized people and then it became sort of this curse or something from hell and then it became hell was too full and then in the 80s it turned into like radiation sickness of some sort and then in the 90s late 90s and early 2000s it tended to become viruses and diseases so for all you young people out there zombies are not exclusively set as the result of being some kind of virus Actually, a lot of zombies in the 80s were the result of some sort of nuclear fallout or chemical goo that got into the ground and reanimated the dead. But the bite is scary. A lot of times they'll have them tear people apart. So you get that, that scene where they rip open their stomach and all the zombies start eating the entrails and stuff. It's really gross. That's for shock value. But it's the bite. It's because that's very visceral and very scary. Now, the only thing I respect from The Walking Dead, and it actually, I think, came from the comic, it was transferred into the TV show, was the one character actually took off the bottom jaw of the zombies she had actually chained up. So they became kind of her protection zombies. Uh, they would ward off other zombies or the other zombies wouldn't notice her as much, that kind of stuff. Uh, but they basically had been neutered because they couldn't bite anymore. They didn't have the clamping motion of two jaws to go into each other to actually bite something else. So they then became ineffective zombies. And that was a super smart moment because it actually was a way to defeat all the zombies, just take away their ability to bite. And now the zombie plague can no longer be spread. So I was thinking, how can you overcome that and make zombies super scary again? 
And actually, it would be to kind of take away the zombie element. Yes, you can still have them run around and kill people uh, who seem healthy or go crazy or whatever you want. That is in itself quite thrilling. But what we need to do now is start changing the virus. And the way to me to make the zombie virus more scary is to connect it to a bug, like a mosquito. So now, if you get bitten by a mosquito, you will get the zombie virus. And people now have this whole new level of concern they have to be worried about. Because maybe there's no zombies around, but there's almost always mosquitoes around, if you, depending on where you live. Now, if you want to crank that up another notch, make it almost any bug. Any bug bite infects you, and you become a zombie as a result. And if you want to do like a lot of traditional zombie movies, you, if you get bit by a bug, it takes a little while to take hold. So you have a week or two weeks before you actually turn into a zombie. And then you have to make the decision, do you tell your friends? And there's always the guy who doesn't tell his friends and then turns on them at a very dramatic moment. But I think the next stage in zombie fiction telling is going to be removing the virus from the zombies themselves and putting it into something else, something else that we would then have to have a dual battle. So there'd be the problem of the actual zombie people running around trying to kill everyone, but then there's also I have to protect myself from bugs, just bugs in general. You know, if there's a lot of dead bodies, if nothing's being taken care of, if there, there's no sort of sewage system working in working order, now what do you attract? You attract bugs. Bugs come in all shapes and sizes. There's little tiny bed bugs and there's all the bugs all over our bodies all the time. That would make it so that the zombie apocalypse now is almost inescapable. So the main part, the main talk for today is a question I was asking myself. No one asked it of me. Uh, that is actually how I seem to spend most of my time is asking myself questions and then trying to answer those questions. But who are the smartest monsters? And most monsters, when I made a short list, actually turned out to be pretty dumb. So you have the classic ones. You have the vampire, the mummy, the werewolf, the zombie, and sort of Frankenstein's monster. Uh, if you have sort of more modern versions, you would have Jason and Freddy from the horror movies. You would have the alien and predator, that kind of stuff. Frankenstein, in the book, was a genius. But for some reason when he's depicted in film, they almost always make him stupid. So he's supposed to be Prometheus. He's really strong. He's really fast. He's really smart. He's just really unattractive. And that's the part where he decides to separate himself from society. If I remember correctly, Frankenstein actually opens up with, he's hidden himself away up at the North Pole, and there's some guy going up there trying to find him. Frankenstein, and again, you want to be technical and say Frankenstein's monster. Okay, we all know what Frankenstein is, so don't be a dick about it. Fictionally speaking, Frankenstein actually should be the smartest monster of the group of monsters. Uh, the mummy also suffers from the same problem. The mummy in movie depictions tends to be just a lumbering, unstoppable force that just comes towards you. So you can shoot it and you can hit it and stuff. And it's just the, I'm talking about like the wrapped up in, in gauze mummy uh, that comes out of a tomb. Whereas the reanimation of a person becomes a, a questionable issue because that person, if they were smart and they regain their animated existence, do they become smart again? That's something that's never explained. One of the reasons we can go back to something I've said twice now, we need some rules when we come up with our monsters. So do you regain your faculties when you reanimate as a mummy? Because we know you don't do that as a zombie. When you reanimate from a dead body to a zombie, you do not regain the faculties you had. Although one of the Walking Dead, one of the of the Dead movies, I forget which one, had 
the zombies start to reorganize and actually get elements of their intelligence back because they had the one who was trying to fill up a car and he was just banging the pump nozzle against a car over and over again because he didn't remember to open the actual nozzle but he had done this thing that he hadn't done in the past and that showed there was a spark within his body within his mind that he was still in there somewhere which was interesting because it was supposed to be happening way way later so that meant the humanity that was still resided within them was took time to sort of reassert itself but in general i think we can just write off zombies as being mindless because that's how they're depicted most of the time mummies seem to run into a question mark because we just don't know what the rule set is uh, do they remain mindless monsters that just want to kill because of a curse or do they start to regain who they were when they were mummified the werewolf, I think, again, we can kind of dismiss because the whole point of a werewolf is when they are in human form, they're a regular human, maybe very pleasant. And they could be a jerk, but, you know, most of the time they want to make them a sympathetic character. So it's almost like an opposite. So you have the human side and then the werewolf side and the werewolf side is just a monster that goes crazy. We have the werewolves from the Twilight series and they sort of retain their faculties to a degree. They understand stuff and they can organize and do stuff. Uh, but I didn't see them being particularly intelligent Intelligent when they were in human form so I didn't know if they were maintaining their intelligence level and they were just dumb in both forms or if there was actually a drop in intelligence when they made their transformation a lot of people would say vampires are the obvious choice vampires are a sensible choice because vampires tend to plan and organize and that shows a higher level of thinking in fact they do often delegate tasks to other servants because they will have day walkers or they will have uh, people they've hypnotized. and they'll have... So if you look at the traditional monsters, vampires probably are at the peak. But if you actually take the text version of Frankenstein's monster, then that character, I believe, is actually supposed to be the smartest one. When we get into modern times, we have Jason and Freddy. Now, Jason is mindless. That is actually the point. Uh, he is just an unstoppable killing machine and he just kills and kills and kills because of an instinct. There was in Jason X, which was the 10th film, the one where Jason goes to space, by the way, and my general rule is when a, a horror franchise goes to space, it's really just lost the plot. It is not. It is now working so hard to get a new element in there, they've actually just given up. The Leprechaun series of films, which I believe there's about seven or eight, went to space twice. And they went to the hood, and I again believe twice. So you can see how tough it is to come up with new ideas. The Hellraiser series, it actually took six movies before they went to space, and that was basically when their funding dropped off completely, and they started making movies in Czechoslovakia in a castle, and they decided to make two movies in one, one time. And things just seem to go real, real off the rails when a movie franchise, a horror movie franchise, goes to space. So Jason, though, when they analyzed his brain in Jason 10, said that basically all he had was that lizard brain part. Everything else was basically not functional. So he was working exclusively on instinct. Now, Freddy's an interesting character because he has this weird control over the dream world, and he attacks you in the dream world, and his plans are very elaborate, which would show a certain amount of intelligence, but he always seems to lose at the end, and he loses at the end because the kids figure out that within the dream world, they have just as much power as Freddy. So if he was really smart, he would try to find ways to do them in a lot faster. Now, I haven't seen those movies in a long time, the only fact I remember is you have to stay awake for him not to be able to get you. And then Johnny Depp's first on-screen death was when he gets shot up to the roof and all his blood comes out. 
But since Freddy loses, despite having everything stacked in his favor, makes me think he's not a very smart monster. Then we get to the final one I want to talk about, and that's the alien. The alien from the movie Alien. Now, the first Alien movie, the alien is quite intelligent. It's not sort of human-level intelligence, but it is certainly more than mindless animal. It plans, it strategizes, it attacks, it separates the people and attacks them one at a time. It grows in power. So it certainly shows forethought in its way of thinking. Now, the problem was each movie as it progressed lowered the intelligence of the alien, making it, to me, less scary. Now, aliens, the movie with an S, the second movie, actually had them behaving as bugs under the control of a queen. But that meant those aliens were just mindless ants that would charge in. So they had that uh, automatic gun set up down a hallway, and as the aliens came in, it ticked down. It was supposed to be very tense because there were so many aliens now, they didn't have enough bullets to shoot them all. But if you had the alien from the first movie in that, it would have figured out that running down that hall was stupid and found a different route. And that's what made the first Alien movie actually scary. The second Alien movie, still a good movie, but it's an action movie. No doubt about it. And each movie after that was more poorly written and the alien's intelligence was dumbed down, except for one section where they had three xenomorphs in a cell because they were being studied. And what the xenomorphs did was two turned on one and stuck him a couple times so that he bled out. But then the acid blood burnt through the cell so they could escape. That was the smartest thing that happened in that film. After that spark of intelligence, it was clearly written in to just get them out of the cage. The aliens went back to just being dumb monsters again. So this, again, kind of goes back to my overall theme of monsters needing rules. You have to decide if your monster is smart or dumb, and you have to keep it that way the whole time. Otherwise, you're going to get this weird feeling that things are incongruous. Because the alien either should have been smart from the beginning and stayed smart in every film, but that means the writer has to be smart to actually write what happens in the film. I think that might be some of the problems that are coming up, because it's very hard to write a smart character, even especially because that character might be smarter than you which is another podcast I've done. This is what happens when you get to 125 podcasts. You actually have said a lot of things before, and I want to reference it and send you back to it, uh, basically just to bolster my numbers, because you know that's the kind of guy I am. I think really the only conclusion I've come to is that most failures in horror franchises and horror films comes down to not setting up clear rules for the writer, not necessarily the audience, because the audience should figure out the rules as the film progresses. Like, this can be done, you shouldn't do this. You can make noise, you can't make noise, you can smell, you can't smell. Um, The alien will track you this way and not that way. That should be stuff that the audience figures out as the movie progresses, but the writer should have that set up from the beginning and follow those rules. So I think, really, the theme for this whole episode has been make your rules, set those rules, and most importantly, follow your rules you make for your monster, and you'll actually end up with a better monster story. Hey, sexy friend. He's making me his bitch. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments, you can tweet at VelociPeter or email VelociPodcast at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast or go to VelociPeter.com slash podcast. And secondary, secondarily, I had a better conclusion, I forget now.
This is the problem with me not running shit down. 